For the last 12 weeks, we've been involved in a series that's been called Beyond. What happens to us after we die? And we've examined through Scripture everything from the death of a believer, the judgment seat of Christ, the reward of the believer, the white throne judgment, what it will be like for those to die without Christ, what the characteristics of hell are like, the characteristics of heaven are like, what it will be like for us to stand before God. And today as we get to this last message, we're going to be talking about the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to be reading the verse 3 verses of this, but want you to know that I'm going to be highlighting the message with some of the other verses from this chapter, but from a time perspective, let me read these first three verses of Revelation chapter 21. John the Revelator was speaking, and he said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Heavenly Father, you have tasked me with an impossible task today to try to put into words something that the two men that saw it, you told them not to tell anybody about. And so I ask that you would allow the anointing of your Holy Spirit to give us glimpses and to let our imagination begin to run with what you are going to present to us as a new home. And I ask your help, O oh Lord, and if there are any that are here today that are not in a personal relationship with you, may the word draw them by the beauty of what you're creating to come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Heaven is referred to 550 times or so in Scripture. It's referred to 54 times in the book of Revelation. And the Old Testament Hebrew word for heaven is shamayim, which means heights or very high. And in the New Testament, the word that is used to describe heaven is aranos, which is elevated or lifted up or that which is raised up. In other words, very clearly, heaven is a place that is raised up and it's in the heights. Now, Scripture designates to us that there are three heavens. Paul, it says, was taken to the third heaven. And so as we begin to do a little research on that, the three heavens that are described for us in Scripture are, number one, the first heaven, which would be the atmospheric heaven that we know. It's the atmosphere around the earth. It's the air that we breathe. It's the things that we see that are around us that are elevated. The second heaven would be the stratospheric heaven. That's the heaven that is revealed to us as the sun goes down and suddenly we begin to see beyond our sky that there is a creation out there that God has made that is vast in its ability and vast in its creation. It's the place where the planets and the stars and the moon and everything else resides. And then the scripture describes a third heaven, which is the heaven of God. It's the divine heaven, the abode of God where the angels and the saints exist. It's a spiritual place, but yet it is a literal place where there is right now those who have gone before us with the glorified Christ existing. 
Now, exactly where this third heaven is is not described well for us. We are just given one detail in Scripture, and that is it's up. It's up. Paul, it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, said he was caught up into the third heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things, John writes, And behold, standing open in heaven, I looked and I saw the door. And the voice I first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet that said, Come up here. So from where John was standing when this revelation took place, he was told to come up. Now, as we begin to examine how far up is this third heaven, I begin to think about what we know of the atmospheric and stratospheric heavens. And here's what we know. If you could travel at the speed of light at 186,000 miles a second through the stratospheric heavens, it would take you one-seventh of a second to travel around the globe. It would take you one and a half seconds to get to the moon. You could reach Jupiter in 35 minutes and 11 seconds because it's only 365 million miles away. You could get to Saturn at the speed of light in one hour and 11 seconds because it's only 790 million miles away. How many of you know what the North Star looks like and where to look to find it? It's north. Now, it is 400 billion miles away. And then there is a star that's called Betagues, which is 880 quadrillion miles away. And by the way, it's big. In fact, for us to see it, they say it's estimated at 200 million miles in diameter. And you want to know something? If you can get that far and you can get to that, you are still in the front yard of the Earth's galaxy. You've only begun. When you've arrived at the extremity of what we know as our solar system, you haven't even begun to explore everything that God has made in the stratospheric heavens and all of the stars that are represented by our sparkles on the wall. And Paul went there, and he came back. And sad to say, the Lord didn't tell us much because he told him that he couldn't tell us. I begin to wonder why about that. What is it that God is hiding as a secret that is so big and so great that he told the two men who have had a chance to glimpse it, no need to even try to describe it because whatever you put into words, it will fail miserably to the reality of what I am doing. And in these three verses we read this morning, there are three features that I would like to highlight for you so that we can begin to get a glimpse and an idea of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And the first one is this. The new heavens and the new earth will appear. It says in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, you'll remember that as you get through Revelation, there's the chronology of what begins to take place. So by the time that the new heaven and the new earth is created, all of the judgment of all of those that did not know Christ is done. 
We've gone through the white throne judgment. There is nobody left in the presence of the Lord except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, those who have, have been followers of Jesus Christ, those who have allowed their sin to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are the only ones left for this new world and new earth and new heaven to be created for. And then it says also that the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And so we know that the universe as we know it, the earth as we know it, has been destroyed. It's gone. And God is doing a new thing. And then God takes all of his holy angels and all of those who have been sealed by his Holy Spirit, all of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and he says, I'm creating an eternal dwelling place for you where all of the redeemed can be in my presence. In fact, this is what it means in Ephesians Chapter 110, when it says, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So this is the fulfillment of that. This is it. The eternal state. This will exist forever and forever. And so as we look at this verse, the first thing that it says is, is John's describing it. It says, and I saw... And I saw, and I have to stop at that phrase because this is the seventh time John has said that in the last two chapters, describing what he saw. In fact, each of the times that he says something that he saw is really a chronology of what the Lord is doing following our death or the rapture of the church. The first time it's used is when the Lord returns. Then he says, and I saw when he defeats the Antichrist. It's used to, to describe the millennial reign of Christ. It's used to, de, to talk about the release of Satan one final time and then his final judgment. It's used, he says, I saw when he describes the white throne judgment. And here for the seventh time, it's used to introduce the new heaven and the new earth. And so we see the sequence, sequence of events each time John speaks. And he says, and then I saw. It's like something new was revealed to him. And so we say, what did he see? He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the, the terminology that he uses here is drawn from the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, Isaiah prophesies and he says, Behold, speaking from the Lord, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, here's a question that has been asked of me many times during this series. Will I remember anything about earth when I am in heaven? Or what memories will I be keeping with me when I get to heaven? The scripture seems to indicate here that we won't remember anything about this. And let me tell you why I believe that to be the case. Because if we had memories that we could keep from here, even the way that we would remember each other would be remembered tainted in sin. Because honestly, each of us, as we think about other people, don't automatically run to the qualities that they have, but we see them in both areas where they, well, they're good in this, but they're bad in this. And, and we're good with those things. And so if we maintain those memories, we would remember each other in a sinful state, and that is not allowed under the righteousness of God. And so there will be a recreation of what we will know. And you say, well, how can this be? If God, who knows all things, can forget my sin, throwing it as far as the east is from the west, never to remember it against me again, then he certainly has the ability to cleanse our mind of everything that we would look at each other in any way that could be considered negative. 
And so there will be no memories tainted with sin. And then he says what is created is new. And that's important because he didn't use the word neos here, which means new as opposed to old or something that's new that can get aged. He used a different word here. He used the word kanos, which means this is something that's created that's brand new in quality, brand new in existence, new in a way that you've never seen before, and it will be completely different than what we know now. And so it will be a heaven and an earth that will not have any storms. There won't be any fierce winds, no lightning, no thunder, no rain. There'll be no more spiritual warfare. There'll be no demons or devils roaming around. You'll never have to worry about second-guessing yourself, and you will not have one second of regret within your life. It will be a new earth created without any of the miseries of godlessness. And this has to happen. It has to be a new heaven, and it has to be a new earth. Because back in the first verse, it said, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, when we were talking about the great white throne judgment, there was a verse that was given there that says this. John was saying, And I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. So we knew that at this judgment of the lost, he saw the great white throne. And then he describes this. Earth and the sky fled from his presence, and there was no place found for them. In other words, the holiness of God makes this earth and the stratospheric sky that we know run away from him, disappears. Now, this has been one of the most fascinating things that I've been studying, and I've been working on this for about a month and had some great conversations. The best way to describe what Scripture means here is that God will literally, in a flash, uncreate everything that he spent the first seven days creating. He will uncreate it in a flash. There are those scientists that says if it burns up, there will still be matter left over. Whatever God is going to do, he will leave a vacuum that the earth used to be in and the space. It's all gone. Now, as I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, okay, if he's going to uncreate everything that we know, then where are we? How come we don't actually get caught up in that? Because as we are going to learn, when we leave this earth, whether it be through rapture or whether we die in Christ, we are instantly transported into heaven, which will become the new Jerusalem. So there is a city that God has that he has created that will be immune to the destruction that's going to take place on this earth and in the heavens. And we will be there. Everything else is gone. And so in this moment of uncreation, it utterly goes out of existence because God never designed it to last forever. Where we are is temporary. It will flee away. The term fled away is the same terminology that's used in Matthew 24, 35 when it says where Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. It's repeated in Mark 13 and repeated again in Luke 21. Jesus said it would happen, and here we find in Scripture, this is where it happens. So what will the new earth be like? What will it be like when God creates this new place? Well, he gives us one clue. Out of everything that John saw and Paul saw, God allows them to give us one clue. And here it is. You ready? All he could say was, well, there's no sea. There's, there's no ocean. 
as a fisherman, that really disappoints me. As I look at that, and I thought, really, that's the clue. In fact, Cindy and I were talking this week, and we're going, man, we're beach people. It's taking away our favorite vacation spot. We know that we live in an earth that is three-quarters covered with water. We know that our bodies are made up mostly of water. Your blood's 90% water. Your flesh is 65% water. And so the sea is emblematic of a water-based environment, and man's existence is water-based. If, if you don't have something to drink for three days, you die of dehydration. And so what he is saying here is the new earth that is being created... It won't operate on a water-based system anymore. Whatever it is that he's creating is going to be different in climate than we are accustomed to right now. Whatever it is in our glorified bodies, we are not going to have to process the demands of consumption of water. So in our glorified form, in this new earth, no water is needed. And there are people who say, well, does, does that mean there's no water at all? What if I get thirsty? Well, number one, I don't think you will ever get thirsty. I don't think that there will be any physical needs that you will ever experience in the presence of the Lord. But it does bring up an interesting point because also in what he saw, he said, I saw, he showed me a river of water flowing from the throne. Now, what I can describe from this is the way he describes this river is he doesn't describe it as water. He says it's a river of water of life. And so whatever the quality of that river that flows from the throne of God, it's not H2O. It is life. Whatever life is and whatever it looks like, that is what flows as a river in heaven. But it won't be H2O based. And so in verse 1, the appearance of a new heaven and a new earth, and I can't tell you any more about what it's going to look like because we just were not given any information. But it will be a surprise, and it will be grand. What we know is that we will literally be raised. We will literally be given resurrected bodies. We will dwell in the eternally new heaven and earth that will be based completely on a different life principle than what we now know in this created universe. And then he moves on to a second point where he says there's going to be a new capital on earth. A new capital. He starts out with the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. And then secondly, he says in verse 2, I saw, this is the eighth time he says this, I saw... The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. So here we see the introduction of the new capital city that currently resides in heaven that will ultimately reside on the new earth. And if you want to mark something in your own mind, this new city has dimensions that are greater than anything we can physically imagine right now. In fact, in verse 16 of this chapter, we are told that this cubed New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles cubed. That's a lot of stories and steps to have to run up and down. 1,500 miles high and cubed, 1,500 miles. And it's described to us as a holy city, a sinless capital city of eternity where everybody who lives in that city is perfectly holy. Now, when we think of cities today, and especially in our country, we think of these, these urban settings that generally become the hot spots for crime. There are, are more um, 
enforcement officers that find themselves tasked with inner city work than anywhere else because it seems that the more people you have together in this earth, the more likely crime is to occur. And so he says to us, I want to show you that in the coming days, I'm creating a city where, that will be the hometown of the population, and the difference is it will all be holy. Everything will be perfect. But the idea of a city brings to us, <clears throat> excuse me, brings to us the idea that there will be relationships and activity and responsibilities and unity and socialization and harmony and communion and living together and doing things. And I think the Lord is showing us everything that cities have that we understand today in terms of, of where we live will be involved there, but in this heavenly Jerusalem, it will all be perfect. You won't have to lock your doors. Number one, you don't have to lock them at night because there's going to be no night. For all of you who love to sleep and take naps, you won't need them there. It will be a different and new place. Holy, holy, holy Jerusalem. In fact, this is the place that God is longing to bring us to. In John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he's trying to explain to them something that they can't fully grasp right now. And so he had this little talk with them, and he says this. When he's getting ready to leave, they love the presence of Jesus on earth so much that they're getting a little agitated by it. And he says to them, hey, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled over this. This is not something to get agitated by. He says, trust in God, trust also in me. And then he says this. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, in other versions, it says there are many mansions. How many of you prefer the term mansion to rooms? I, I prefer mansion myself. <laughs> because to me, in my mind, and probably like you, it means that there's an estate. There's, you know, we, we, I used to get sent to my room in punishment. For some of you, time out was, go to your room. Now, now I'm not saying that that has anything whatsoever to do with it. But, but the idea that God has gone and his son is preparing a place, that this, there's a massive city, and whether it will be mansions or rooms, if God creates a room, it will be bigger than anything you can imagine even a mansion to be. And for those of you who have really good imaginations, I'm sure that your mind has run wild. I'm, my wife and I have talked about it often. We're not going to live next to each other because she's going to be near the, the shopping center and I'm going to be in the country. I also don't believe that that will be an issue because whatever you think, your mind will take you there. We'll just be transported everywhere we want to be. And that this massive city is going to be the home base that we can come back to and that we will have travel anywhere and however we want to get there. It's going to be a new heavens created. And if this was just his trial run, can you imagine what he's going to do when it's for real? So I'm going to prepare a place for you. And since he's preparing a place, whatever he does is going to have the qualities and nature of God in it. In Revelation 21.10, it said, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so this is the third time that he indicates to us that 
that this Jerusalem, this place that I believe right now is the dwelling place of those who are in heaven, this new Jerusalem, is going to literally come from the third heaven and set on the new earth as the capital city of the new earth, and it's being prepared. Each of us have different tastes. If I were to design a room with my nature in it, it probably would look a lot like my office and have dead animals hanging on it <laughs> that each represent a story and a time of life that I like to For others of you, your colors may be far more pink and pastel than I'm comfortable with. One of the things that I enjoyed doing when I was working with the youth in the district office is when I'd go to pastor's houses, I would ask their teenage kids, hey, can I, can I take a look at your room? And, and most of them would let me unless they were really, really filthy and they weren't we're going to be embarrassed. But I would go to the room, and it was amazing to me how much I could discover about a teenager in about one minute of looking around their room. You can see what they value by what they hang on their wall. You can see what they value by what is sitting on the top of their dresser. You learn a lot about them, and, and so you begin to recognize that based on the things that are important to them, those are the things that are around. Can you imagine then what a city is going to look like that God designs? I, I can't even begin to imagine Whatever it will be will be so far beyond our ability to express it again that he told those who saw it, don't even try. Just don't even try. But it is a city that is designed, the architect, the builder, it will bear all of the marks of his holy glory. And it's being prepared right now, awaiting the rapture of the church to join him there. And so this holy city that comes down from heaven, there's a descending of this place that's been prepared that will set on earth, is there. And he describes it. The most, the most formal event that Jewish people knew at the time was weddings. And so as John's describing what he sees, he sees this city, and as you go through the chapter, you'll, you, you see the... the Gates that are described in, in such ornament detail, and it's a city of gold that's probably so pure it's transparent, and, and all he can say is, wow, it looks like a bride coming down the aisle, getting ready on her wedding day. That's the closest thing that he could describe in human terms of what this looked like, and then as it's described for us, our minds go wild with the beauty and opulence of this new Jerusalem, this heaven that comes down and sets. And then he leads us to this last point, that there will be a supreme ruler of the new realm. In verse 3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. We say, Who is this supreme person of heaven? It's God. In Psalm 73, 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and who do I desire on earth but thee? And it's announced with a loud voice from the throne, and it's mentioned about 20 plus times, this phrase throughout the Bible, the, a loud voice. Now, we don't know if this is a, an angel that becomes an announcer, but what we know is that through this, that God is no longer a far-off being, but suddenly he becomes one who is in the presence of his people. And John gets so nervous at this that he begins to stutter and repeat himself. He just kept repeating, 
He's, he's among us and we are with him. He repeats it like three times in the next three verses. Because for him, as he's seeing this, he recognizes that in the Old Testament, we had the prophets declaring God and Moses, who wanted to see his glory, had to be hidden in a cliff. And as the presence of God walks by, he gets to see the behind section of God and he's burned with the glory of God. The New Testament, we have the incarnate Jesus who comes as the express image of God to describe to us the Father, and we see that. And then when Jesus leaves, he sends us the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us, who leads us into the knowledge of a holy God. But this, for the first time since the creation of the world, the triune God is brought back together, and in complete unity, he sets up his throne in the city, and we are there with him and can see him with our holy eyes. And John can't get over this. He keeps saying, we're really going to be in the presence of God. That's incredible. It's marvelous. It's unimaginable because there were Jewish times when they couldn't even mention the name of God. And now he sees we are going to be in the presence of God. Holy God with his people. And then he wraps it up with this possessiveness thing. And God's going to look at us and say, you are my people. And then he lets us possess him, and he says, and I will be your God. For those who are parents and your children have grown up and you become grandparents, I know from personal experience there's nothing that brings a smile to my wife's face like having the family together. Can you imagine the smile on God's face when he finally, when he finally gets the family together? And he says to them, I'm going to be able to show you my glory in its fullness. I've had to hide it from you because you couldn't take it. You couldn't see it. You were in conditions that even with the sun, my son's blood covering your sins in this earthly form, you can't see my glory, but finally I'm creating a city and I'm creating a new body for you that I get to reveal all of my glory and oh, am I going to hug you? Because the family will be together. New heavens, new earth. For eternity. What a glorious day that will be. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd please come. So, when you think about what is beyond this life, the grandeur and the glory of it all, I pray that what we understand here is the power of the name of Jesus and the power of his redeeming blood by which we may be saved. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. We're going to sing that song again about the wonderful name of Jesus.